the book of Leviticus. It's the third book of the Bible, and it's set right after the exodus of the Israelites from their slavery, when God brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai and invited Israel into a covenant relationship. Now, they had quickly rebelled and broke that covenant, and God had wanted for his glorious presence to come and live right in the midst of Israel in the form of this tabernacle. But Israel's sin has damaged the relationship. So, at the end of the previous book, Exodus, Moses, as Israel's representative, could not even enter God's presence in the tent. The book of Leviticus opens by reminding us of this fundamental problem. It says, the Lord called to Moses from the tent. So the question is, how can Israel, in their sin and selfishness, be reconciled to this holy God? That's what this book is all about, how God is graciously providing a way for sinful, corrupt people to live in his holy presence. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us who are gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So Leviticus, right? Everyone's favorite book. We all love it. Nothing warms your heart like reading Leviticus, right? It's great. Uh, <laughs> it's one of those books, you know, if, if you were here last year, we did the Bible, the Bible in a year, but the reading plan we, we used took you through like a little bit of Old Testament, a little bit of New Testament, a psalm and a proverb every day. And the reason we did it that way is because usually when people try and read the Bible straight through beginning to end, they get to Leviticus and they just give up, right? That's assuming they even make it all the way through Exodus, right? This is not, this is not great reading, right? It's very dry, and, and sometimes it's kind of unpleasant to read. Um, nonetheless, it's in there. It's in there. Jesus knew these words. He lived by these words. So we ought to know what they say. We're going to be in Leviticus 3 and 4, and because I love you, I'm only reading a few verses from each one, so you don't have to hear a ton of them. Um, but you'll get the gist of it. So we're going to start in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And these are detailing two different kinds of sacrificial offerings that they have to offer at the tabernacle. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering, as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's sons shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Who's ready for lunch? You are, yeah, okay, you get the liver. Um, this is one of those passages, right? You get, some of the stuff in here, of course, to, to most of us is kind of unnecessarily graphic, but of course, if you grow up in a place where you raise your own livestock and kill them, this is all pretty much boilerplate, right? You know all this stuff, you deal with it. This, this offering, this peace offering, it's one of the harder ones for us to figure, understand because um, trying to figure out like what, what peace are you offering this for? 
Um, but that's usually because of the way that we understand the word peace versus the way it was understood back then. And, and then there's uh, you know, a language barrier there too between ancient Hebrew, modern English, and all that. So a, a better word here than peace offering would be fellowship. It's a fellowship offering. There's a couple of important points that you need to notice in this. The first is pay attention to how the sacrifice is offered, right? If you're bringing a sacrifice to the tabernacle or later to the temple, you select the animal yourself. You go out to your own herds and you pick out the animal yourself. It's got to be a good one, right? You can't pick one that is already injured or that's sickly. You have to pick one in the prime of its life that's very healthy, the best-looking one of the flock, which, just as a side note, right, if you are raised around people who raise livestock, you know that those are the animals they use for breeding, that's the one you use to guarantee that the rest of your livestock for generations to come are good and strong and healthy. And they are being told, you have to give that one to God and trust that he's going to take care of your livestock on his own. That alone is a big deal. But then you bring it to the temple, and you stand in the, the doorway of the outer courtyard, and you bring it with you to that doorway where you show it to God, because God's in the middle. You show it to him. You lay your hand on it to show that this is your offering that you're bringing. And then you kill it. Not the priest. You have to kill it yourself. And you have to do it outside the temple because you can't bring death into the temple of the God who gives life. And this is true for every animal sacrifice, no matter the purpose. If you're making a sacrifice to atone for your sins, you will have to watch as an animal's life fades away because of your misdeeds. It's a really powerful object lesson. In this, the, the fellowship offering, after the animal is killed, the blood is splashed on the altar. And again, this happens with almost all the animal sacrifices because blood represents life. And it functions like a sort of detergent to wash away the corruption of sin and death from the holy space. And then parts of the animal are burned on the altar. And, and this is where the differences between different types of offering are most noticeable because they all have different things you're supposed to actually all offer. And sometimes you give part to the priest and sometimes you don't, and that's where the, the differentiations come in. But in this fellowship offering, only, only certain parts, right, bits of fat and specific organs are burned. You have no idea why it's those specific parts, and we probably never will. It's an ancient ritual from another culture. We will probably never grasp all the intricate reasons why it's this particular bit. The Bible doesn't tell us. We just have to go with it. But what happens to the rest of it? There's a lot of animal left, right? There's a lot of lamb left over here. Simple. You eat it. You get to eat it. In fact, this is probably the only way that most Israelites would have eaten meat outside of the high holy days for most of their history. The animals that they brought for a fellowship offering to God. And that is why it's called a fellowship offering. Part of it goes to God as a food offering. You eat the rest. It's like you're sharing a meal. You are symbolically sharing a meal with your God. And the idea behind it is that it's a way for you and God to be close. You are voluntarily sharing what you have with God and enjoying each other's company. That's the whole point of that sacrifice, to bond you with your God. You can't physically have a meal with him, so you do it symbolically. So I'm skipping ahead a bit to chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally, 
in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them. If it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. You should get the sense as you read through Leviticus that the temple and the tabernacle probably are pretty disgusting places, right? I mean, there's blood everywhere. There's, <laughs> there's constant burning animal parts on the altar. Um, it's not exactly what we would think of as worshipful, right? Um, for them, it is. The, the sin offering here in chapter 4, it doesn't really cover what we would think of as sin because it is focused entirely on accidental offenses. If you've deliberately done wrong, if you have knowingly sinned, there is no sacrifice you can offer. In that case, all you can do is acknowledge your sin and cast yourself on God's mercy. And you hope that God in his mercy will allow you to then treat it as an accidental sin. And so then you can circle back and offer some kind of sacrifice. But you first have to repent and, and ask God for forgiveness and cast yourself on his mercy. A better word for this sacrifice, again, would be a purification offering. It's meant to deal with the consequences of your sin. And there's two important things this offering teaches us. First, that your actions have consequences which are not tied to your intentions. If you make a mistake, it doesn't matter if it was an innocent mistake. It doesn't matter if you were trying to do something good and things went horribly wrong or if you were just really unlucky. The consequences of that mistake still exist. You can't just shrug your shoulders and walk away. You have to deal with it. That's true at every level. It's true at your job, right? If you make a mistake at work, it doesn't matter why you made the mistake. The mistake still happens, whether you had good reason for it or not, whether you were just unlucky or not. If you say something that hurts your spouse, it doesn't matter if you meant to hurt them or not. You, they've still been hurt, right? And this applies to bigger things, too. Now, we recognize this in some cases, right? That's the reason we have manslaughter charges in addition to murder charges. It doesn't matter if you meant to kill them or not. A person is still dead. But it applies to smaller, less serious actions as well. Our actions will always have consequences, and we have to be aware of that, and we have to be aware of how they affect the world around you. Now, the second thing we learned is that the bigger you are, the more disastrous the consequences of your actions are. And particularly, religious leaders have to be held to higher standards. Now, really, anyone in a position of leadership or, or authority should be held to a higher standard. But here, what you see is, if you, if you keep reading in the chapter, you'll see that all the other leaders, and they're literally just called leaders, you know, they don't designate any other position outside of the priest. Everyone below the priest, they offer the same kind of offering that everyone else in the community does, a goat. But if the priest sins, he has to offer a bull, which is the same thing you offer if the entire community has sinned together. Because when the priest sins, it endangers the whole community. 
that part's really more for me, I guess, than you all, so, you know, um, <laughs> I should watch out. But no matter who committed the sin, the sanctuary is affected when they come there. And the sanctuary has to be cleansed when they come because otherwise, God's presence can't be there. The effect of people's sins would be to drive God's presence from their midst. It would be a catastrophe. Which is why the blood of the sacrifices is applied to the altar and not the sinner. It's about purifying the sanctuary, not purifying the sinner. In fact, that's what all of the purity laws are about. It's not about making the people pure. It's about making the temple pure so that God's presence can be there without endangering the people who come to worship. These laws are all about enabling God's presence to safely dwell in the midst of his people. And really, that's the entire story of Scripture. It's the story of a God who wants to be close to us. And our sin is the thing that makes that dangerous. Because sin cannot exist in the presence of a holy God. Sin and God don't mix. It's not oil and water. It's oil and flame. One will destroy the other entirely. Sin is antithetical to God. And since it's very evident that we are not able to stop ourselves from sinning, even if only by accident, something has to be done about the effects of sin if God is going to dwell with us. Everything in Leviticus is a foretaste of what Jesus is going to do. Jesus will embody the law like no one else. He will perfectly uphold it, but he himself is going to be the ultimate purification offering. And he will be the ultimate atonement for sins. His death on the cross at one stroke will pay the price incurred by our sins and will purify all of God's creation so thoroughly that no further purification is ever needed. God's presence can now safely dwell among us no matter what. And Jesus' entire life embodied the fellowship offering. He made a point of sharing meals with sinners. The very people who would have needed to bring a fellowship offering to the temple but who probably couldn't have afforded to do it. God brought the fellowship offering to them. Remember, the whole point of the story is that God wants to be present with us. God wants to be around us. The law exists so the Israelites can make the tabernacle and later the temple safe for them to enter. But God knew from the very beginning that they would fail. They wouldn't be able to uphold it. And so these laws reveal deep truths and they reveal God's ultimate plan. We cannot save ourselves. And our human frailty makes it impossible for us to deal with the consequences of our own sin. So God takes it upon himself to deal with him. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the one who fulfills the law in its entirety. So the law's true purpose is to show that even God's chosen people, even the ones set apart from the rest of the world as the people through whom God will save the world, even the ones who saw the plagues in Egypt and who saw the Red Sea parted and who were led through the desert by a pillar of cloud and fire, even they are no better, no holier, no less sinful than anyone else. And so, the law serves 
to identify and condemn sin. The law is a trap. It draws sin out of hiding and makes it visible. And if you think it's weird that we're talking about sin as if it's like a, a, an entity of its own, that really is how the Bible treats it. Not just as human actions, but as this, this force out in the world that does exert its own will at times, that tries to control us. It treats it like a, like a disease that spreads and infects us all around. It treats it as something beyond merely human actions. Before the law, no one knew what sin was. It was able to live in the shadows, spreading death and destruction and chaos all throughout the world with no one being any the wiser. But remember that just because you don't know what sin is, not being aware that you're sinning, that doesn't erase the consequences of it. And to be really clear, we're not talking about like hell and fire and brimstone here. If you read through Leviticus, one thing you're going to notice is it doesn't mention the afterlife anywhere. It does not talk for one minute about what happens after they die. Not because that's not important. The Bible will deal with that topic elsewhere. But in this book, these laws are about this life and this world. Because they are very aware that sin has effects here and now. Sin brings chaos and destruction. Sin disorders the world. Sin disrupts the connection between God and his creation. And it does that whether we are doing it intentionally or not. Whether we understand sin is or not. And so we see that the underlying purpose of the law is to help us to see sin for what it is and to give us a fighting chance. All of Israel now functions throughout the Old Testament, like a cosmic courtroom in which God, the righteous judge, can condemn and deal with sin once and for all, which he will do on the cross and in the resurrection. And all because God wants to be with us. Because God wants to sit down and share a meal with us. Because God wants us to be able to enter into his presence freely and safely, and he knows we're going to be sinners when we do it. Because he loves us. So as we wrap up this service, and as we head next door, and we share a meal together after the service, remember this. Remember this. God is here. He's present with us. He's dwelling in each and every one of us, even though every last one of us is just as sinful as the next one. And he's sharing that meal with us. Because Jesus has made a way. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.